Oh, my God. 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Today is Yom HaShoah. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Each year we uh, take a look at different aspects of the Holocaust through the recordings of Voices of the Shoah, which we're going to get to in just a few minutes here at JM in the AM. We also have special guests who will join us today to talk about the importance of this day and the importance of keeping the testimony of the survivors alive, around, in existence, in perpetuity, forever. Today in the state of Israel, the siren for Yom HaShoah sounded, it pierced the air, and all stood at attention. Scatter with the dust in the breeze 
stand before the world Knowing what to say When the very last survivor Fades away When I hold my grandson close to me And his fingers trace the pattern of my tears He asks me, Grandpa, tell me why do you cry? What is it that you fear? another child who smelled as sweet and felt this warm but he was taken from the four my eyes and only I remain to mourn what will become of all the memories are they to scatter in the breeze And who will stand before a world that now wishes to deny Or will they believe in someone Who never heard the cries As the situation got worse in the late 1930s, parents became desperate to save their children, to do anything they could to send their children to safety. Next, you will hear testimonies from a group of people who were on the famous Kinder Transport to England. They were children who went on trains with thousands of other children, most never to see their parents again. Five-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds,
it was very, very expensive to get out and we didn't have the money. And uh, I remember there was a family, friends of my parents who were very rich. And my father suggested we all go out together and they pay and my father would repay it. And they said, no, they didn't go and we didn't go. They died in the camps. And my parents did. And what happened to the money? And they're just too mean to, to help out. And they had a lot of money somewhere. So we didn't go. But uh, who could have known what was going to happen? We knew that we were going to have a bad time. We knew people were going to be anti-Semitic. We knew that we weren't allowed to do anything and be very, very careful. But who could have predicted something like that? I would queue with other Jews in offices where I swear they kept us waiting on purpose. You would sit outside some big uh, knob's office for about four, five, six hours with other Jews trying to get out of the country. My future adoptive mother offered to have all of us over and each adult had to be uh, offered a job which no English person wanted and mostly these jobs were domestic or nursing or something of that kind and she offered my parents the job of housekeeper, cook, cleaning lady and my father, gardener, chauffeur, etc. and I would just come along as the child of the family. So my mother continued her running around and got permission in the end for all of us to go. My permit was to come over on a specific date, July 1939, and my parents' permit was for the 15th of September. And therefore, they were able to get me out, but because war broke out on the 3rd, they missed it. I remember very well preparing to come over to England. My mother explained it all to me. I didn't fully understand about Hitler, but I just understood we had to get out. We had to keep it from my paternal grandmother because the scenes she would have made would have been too horrific and she would have tried to stop me leaving, so we had to keep up a charade to pretend that I wasn't going, I would be seeing her the next week. And my mother and I packed, my, packed two cases, we reached aloud two. And into one she put all the family linen. There was a great deal of embroidered work, which her mother had done, very beautiful stuff. And uh, I was able to choose my clothes and my toys, and she helped me as best she could. She also taught me a little bit of English, but not very much. I only knew one or two phrases. I was six and a half. I've got a feeling that the entire family saw me off at the railway station and I do remember there was a deathly silence on the, on the platform. All the parents were seeing off these children and we had labels around our necks with our names and I sort of have a feeling I began to feel like a refugee right there. And I remember the pitch silence but my cousins said that I screamed for my parents but I have no recollection of screaming at all. I don't think I did say goodbye because I had chicken pox and I was very poorly. I had a temperature of 103 or 104 and my mother literally carried me to the station and at the last minute she was going to hold me back and our doctor said to her, well, Hilda, you must realise this is the last chance. She doesn't go now, she won't go. So she literally threw me into Tanya's arms as the train was going out. So I didn't really say goodbye. And if I did, I probably thought I was coming back. The German soldiers literally lined the platform 
and the parents were allowed to put their children on the train and then they had to stand back. And I can remember the beginning of the journey being quite excited but gradually of course one got tired and I do remember the train stopping and the boys got out and played football and we girls had a picnic and I've been told later that must have been in Holland and we got to the hook of Holland and then we got onto a boat a very nice clean berth I remember and we arrived at Harwich in England and were taken down to London. I remember walking up the platform and there was this gentleman with a black hat black coat and a dog collar and I'd never seen anybody like that before but he had a lovely smile so I was just given to him and said this is Renata which is the only bit I understood and I went off with him not speaking any of English apart from yes and no and I can remember being put to bed that first night having the cuddle and the kiss and the next morning I was taken to church, first time in my life, and knew, knowing none of the children there at all. And the service ended and I saw two little girls picking up the hymn books. And Mum looked around and I wasn't there. And she looked down the front of the church and I was with the other two little girls collecting hymn books and the three of us were laughing our heads off. They treated me as if I was their own. They couldn't have any children. I wouldn't say they gave me everything, but because they didn't have everything to give. But I was certainly made to feel one of the family. Everybody accepted me just as one of them eventually. And I go back now and people uh, used to tell my sons, we can remember your mum when she was so high when she first came. And after being away from the place for 35 years, I still walk down the main street and people remember. American soldiers of World War II were not fighting to free Jews from death camps. They were fighting to save Europe, to stop Hitler's relentless push for total global control. In the eyes of the American government, working to free Jews was a nuisance that only delayed victory. At the most, the U.S. government saw it as a side issue, not a goal. Abe Cheslow was a soldier for America fighting in Europe during the war. He also happens to be Jewish. When his armored division reached Dachau and liberated it in 1945, the prisoners that were found alive were barely so. Many of their minds weakened to comatose states. Soldiers rushed to find extra food in their army supplies and to feed the survivors. But because the survivors starved for so long, their stomachs had shrunk and the food was, to them, undigestible. Many survivors died from being fed this food. This is an eyewitness, first-hand account of the liberation of Dachau from an American soldier. My name is Abe Cheslow. I was present at the liberation of Dachau, and I was a 20-year-old corporal at that time in the 20th Armored Division. I was born and brought up in Brooklyn, New York, and of course I was Jewish because the whole world was Jewish. In my elementary school, 
out of 40 or 42 children, probably three or four were not Jewish. My father was a kosher butcher. And then at the age of 18, I was drafted. And for whatever reason, the wisdom of the army put me into the armored force. I was put into a tank. And everybody in the division came from Iowa, Nebraska, uh, Missouri. Of the 117 men in my company, I was the only Jewish kid, and I was the only kid from New York. In the three years I spent with them, there was never a single instance of anti-Semitism or any prejudice. We knew Hitler was bad, but I had no idea, even as I went into Dachau, that they were concentration camp. I had no idea. Armored divisions are very mobile, so you go where they need you. 17 tanks, five men to a tank. There were 117 men in a company. And we ended up in the 7th Army in southern Germany, close to the Austrian border. A week before the war ended in Germany, the war ended on May 7th. We had been in combat. We had lost some people. And basically, all we wanted to do was stay alive. For the most part, uh, the German infantry would take off their uniforms and put on civilian clothes and try to melt into the general population. The only, we were hit badly just outside of Munich. There was a Wehrmacht anti-tank school and an SS school. And we didn't know anything about it. We came merrily down the road. And all of a sudden, they opened up with these 88s, which were great anti-tank guns. And they just wiped us out. I lost a tank commander who was killed then. Just as the Army intelligence, if you can put the two words together, never told us that we were coming up against an anti-tank school. They never told us that there was a concentration camp, and we had no idea. And we came through a picturesque, picture postcard town, and it was called Dachau. And we had no problem at all. We just rolled through. There wasn't any defense, no problem at all. And we came across what looked like a college campus. There were brick buildings set in the pines. It was very pretty. There was a fence around it, but it looked like a prison. We could hear some gunfire. And so we buttoned up the tanks. And then when you're in a tank, you look through a periscope. That's the only visibility you have. And as we took the turn through the gates into the camp, all of a sudden we saw Dachau, and, the, and we saw the full camp, and it was much more vivid, much more hurtful than even combat. It was, uh, it was stuff, it, it, it was totally unbelievable. <sighs> We saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dead bodies, corpses stacked and lying helter-skelter on the ground, uh, some nude, most in black and white pajama-type uh, clothes, and they were literally skeletons covered with, with skin. 
there was a railroad siding and there were 40 railroad cars and for the most part they were full of corpses. They just lay there and many of them died before we got there. The only way we knew that they were alive is that their eyes would follow us as we went around the camp because they were so weak they couldn't get up or do anything. They just lay there but the eyes did follow and those eyes those eyes made you feel guilty. We unbuttoned the tank and we jumped out and, uh, and we, uh, we had seen combat, we had had friends killed, we had had tanks burn. We were macho, we were he-men. We didn't show emotion. And it was probably good because after being in combat and seeing some tanks blown up, that's the only way that you could climb up into a tank the next day and go out. And here I saw these guys jump out of their tanks, get down on the ground, cradle one of the survivors, and they cried. And I, and I climbed down and I cried. And it's the, the first time in service that any of us cried. And they, and they, they were deeply affected being normal, typical GIs, the first thing you want to do is help. And we jumped back into our tanks and we went through everything we owned. And we got cookies from home and candy bars that we had put away for future use and C rations and K rations. And we jumped down and we tried to feed these survivors. And we didn't know that that was the worst thing we possibly could have done and many of them died because of it, and, and, we, and they died terrible deaths. The guilt of killing these people just at the moment of their deliverance was a terrible, terrible guilt. I did not speak of any of this for more than 40 years. As we approached, the German SS and the German people who ran the camp tried to take off their uniforms and hide. And later, they were pointed out that some of them put on the, the pajama type things and tried to pass as prisoners, which was not very bright because they looked healthy. If you looked and saw somebody with flesh on his face, and you knew that he was a German. We did find some German soldiers dead. Once the Germans threw their arms away and their uniforms, the survivors rose up and they got chair legs and pieces of bed and sharp sticks and they fell on the Germans and they killed them. And the people in my company who had seen acts of bravery or acts of cowardice saw that these skeletons, these corpses almost, had killed these Germans and there was a respect that went to these survivors and some of that respect radiated back towards me because I was the only Jew that they were familiar with. The immediate thing was they had to get Germans to bury the corpses because there was fear of of disease, typhus. And of course, every, everybody in Dachau, without exception, said, we didn't know what went on. 
which was ridiculous because the train tracks went through Dachau and, and you couldn't you could not have seen it the road went through they all swore that no they didn't know they brought him to the camp and that they, they really didn't want to have anything to do with it and they were forced to and in groups of three or five men they were taken around and this is before military government got in. Military government did have people who spoke German and, and did set down patterns and rules. But before that, uh, we were so angry. We, we were going to show them what they did. I remember I had a school teacher and I had a banker. And I took them around and I said, this is a, this is a railroad car, this is this, this is this, and this is the oven. One of them turned to the other and said, hey, this would be a good thing for my mother-in-law. And he said it so flippantly that I wanted to kill him. And it's the, the only time that I lost my cool and I jumped on him and I would have killed him. I started to bang his head again. So, and they pulled me off. And it's, the, and, and it's probably one of the maybe two or three times in my whole life I lost my temper. But I would have killed him. There was just no question about it. And they didn't, they were not angry with me, the military people were not angry with me because I had done it. I mean, they, there was justification in their eyes. As I talked to them in Yiddish, they asked whether I was a Jew. And they took my arm and, and it was like a letter from home. As long as I was a Jew and as long as I was there, nothing bad would happen to them. I would imagine when you're in the last stages of malnutrition and you look up and here are these big tanks and, and soldiers carrying guns and speaking a language you're not familiar with. When you did talk to them, their conversation and their interest and everything else were focused on survival or have you seen my daughter, have you seen my wife? Can you do something for my friend here? Have you seen my children? The, the same medics that patched us up when we got wounded, they were the first medics to try to treat these people. And then the evacuation hospitals came in, and instead of the food that we gave them, they set up IVs, and then we went on. There wasn't anything else for us to do. For the most part, I buried it for many years. My wife and my children knew about it, and some of my friends knew about it tangentially. They knew I was there, but it was never talked about. It's funny, when I was in the Army and we were having a rough time, somebody who was very wise, and I have no idea who he was, but I remember he said, after this is all over, many years later, you will forget all the rotten, miserable chicken Thing, but when you do remember, you'll remember the funny parts. Four years ago, I got a phone call, and there was a reunion. And there was about 40 or 50 people got together in South Dakota. We didn't talk about combat. We didn't talk about the people who died. We, we didn't talk about Dachau. So we buried it. My daughter is a school teacher, and she called, and she said, would you speak? I said, of course. And I found it was cathartic. It was the first time that I talked about it. And it has been very good. I had mentioned 
in one of the schools, the fact that we fed the survivors and that they died and I, we felt so terrible and, and that I, I carried this guilt. And then I got letters from the children. In one letter in particular, a young girl said, you shouldn't feel guilty. You were trying to do good and you have to keep on doing this and so forth. And it made it all right. It made it lots better. I have fewer nightmares now. I feel better about it than I did 10 years ago because 10 years ago it was still bottled up and I knew it was there, but it was my little secret. I was always less sure of politics because I came home and Roosevelt was still the great savior and later I found that that they knew about the concentration camps and they didn't bomb the railroads going in. They didn't take the 20,000 children that could have come in. So I don't trust government as much as I should. And it isn't just a fanciful type thing. I know that some of these people could have been saved. Sometime I go to Dodger Stadium and I look around and I figure, what. Well, what would happen if the government suddenly decided to take the, the Episcopalians or the Baptists or the Mexicans? There was an announcement, all Southern Baptists go to exit 15. There are times I look around, if I'm in, in the temple, and look around at all the faces and try, and try to figure out, how could you take all of these faces, all of these people, the children, the infants, the grandfathers, and so forth, and put them away just because it, had Hitler won, all of them would have been killed. It's incomprehensible how you can take everybody that I see and just wipe them out because they're Jewish. It could happen unless we watch out for it. Before World War II, Japan was attempting to expand as a military world power. And as Hitler gained greater power in Europe, Japan saw a chance to attack the United States while attention was diverted. Japan surprise attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii on December 7, 1941. Americans became suspicious of anyone of Japanese descent, thinking they could be spies. Soon after, people in the United States of Japanese descent, whether full American citizens or not, whether born in the United States or not, were labeled enemy aliens and put into detention camps. This is the story of two Americans of Japanese descent who were drafted to join the American army to fight in World War II. Their family remained in U.S. detention camps while these two men risked their lives in Europe, helping to free others. As you will hear, they are important witnesses to the results of the torture and murder committed by the Germans and their conspirators in World War II. My name is Fred Yasukochi. I was born in um, Garden Grove, California. J.M. and A.M., and we will continue with the voices of the Shoah on this Yom HaShoah morning here at J.M. and the A.M. 
It is a Thursday on this April the 12th, the 27th of Nisan. Today is designated as Yom HaShoah, Yom HaZikaron, LaShoah V'Lagvura. A day that we recognize those who perished in the Holocaust and the heroism of those who, in fact, did perish and those who did not. On this 27th of Nisan, today is day 12 in the counting of the Omer, one week and five days. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. 45 degrees, cloudy, and a high of 59 here in the New York area, 68 degrees in Jerusalem. Today is Yom HaShoah, tomorrow, Friday morning broadcast. Malcolm Honline will rejoin us for the weekly update tomorrow morning, 7.40 Eastern time here at JM in the AM. Next week, Yom HaZikaron on Wednesday, that's Israel Memorial Day. Yom Ma'ud on Thursday, that's Israel Independence Day, Israel 70. We are seven days away from Israel 70. JM and the AM, we will have special guests join us live in studio this morning to discuss Yom HaShoah, including Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, publisher of Hamudian, director of Project Witness. Stanley Stahl will join us, executive vice president of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous, and our good friend Leon Goldenberg, who has, spoken about, who has spoken about the Shoah and survivorship before. Uh, he will discuss the topic with us today on this Yom HaShoah at JM in the AM. More coming up as Voices of the Shoah continues at JM in the AM. My name is Fred Yasukochi. I was born in um, Garden Grove, California in 1920. And my name is Lawrence Morey, born in 1918 in L.A. And my father was always a farmer. I was um, drafted into the U.S. Army in the month of December in 1941 and came into induction center through Fort MacArthur in, in San Pedro. I was not uh, forced to evacuate into the camps as the rest of the Japanese Americans were. I was already in the service. However, it was doubtful in my mind that they even wanted us there to begin with because they had uh, already issued a proclamation or something that uh, Japanese-American GIs were, were to be discharged and were to be treated as enemy alien. I was inducted into the Army in 41 of April the 8th. I was in Fort Ord until the war started, where we had to leave California, and I ended up in Texas, Camp Walters. From there, I went to Mississippi, where they started the 442nd combat team, and I ended up as a 522nd artillery. And from there, we went overseas. Don't forget that the 442nd was first started out in 1943. At that point, uh, they decided to keep the uh, Niseis in the military. We were named uh, to be part of the 442nd combat team. I was in Camp Robinson, Arkansas, and that was a training center for the infantry. Nobody ever bothered us there, meaning that I was not blunt end of a joke or anything else. I was treated as, as a human being. But the only trouble was that the uh, officials of the Army and the captains were not too sure as to what to do with us or how far we should go. We were busted off. All of our stripes were taken, and no promotion was visible. And as a consequence, we uh, were turned out to mow lawns and chop trees and fight the chiggers out in Arkansas. While we were in Texas, we were in the Army, but they didn't know what to do with us. We got up in the morning, we went up to the hill, we got this rock and moved about 50 yards to the other hill. 
next day, we went back the same hill and got that rock and moved back to the hill that we moved the, the day before. And we did that for, I don't know how many weeks or months. And one good thing about it, we didn't need to pull KP because they didn't trust us in the kitchen. <laughs> so that was the only good part of it. And toward the end, we went around collecting trash. And then they finally came out that they're going to form the, some kind of combat team. So we landed in Italy, I think the town of Brandisi. That's uh, more or less at the bottom of the booth. But we ran into resistance later on. Well, that was, for me, it was really a mixed feeling. You wasn't sure exactly why we were there, especially when our parents was in a relocation camp. And on top of that, when we did come out of the Army, which way were we going? We weren't sure of anything because our parents was in a relocation camp. How long they're going to be there and what's going to happen after, though? We weren't sure of anything. As I viewed the situation, I could not see ourselves getting away from this prejudicial attitude that the American people were going to have against us. We had to have the tools to fight that. What better than to have an Army record behind you that you could shove to these guys I had some property in the United States, in California, that my father gave me. It was uh, about a 40-acre lemon orchard. And he issued it to me when I, was, when I turned 21, which, which I did that year that I got in the service. And so one day on the front in Italy, there's a guy from the state of California that wanted to see me, and he wanted for me to accept a summons to appear in court because they wanted to escheat my property. Here on one hand I had the rifle and here on the other hand I had this order to appear in court because I was considered an enemy alien. You know, right then and there I thought, my goodness, you know, what do they expect a poor guy like me to do? In the first place he's trying to prove himself as, as an American, fighting for, for his country. On the other hand, the country is trying to take everything that he's got. But fortunately, in this particular case, uh, it's known as the Oyama case, and uh, we all got together and pooled our resources so that we could fight the California government in the, in the United States. And we won. We were, what, six months in Italy? And about yeah, just about. Six months in France, and I think we ended up about six months in Germany. From the standpoint of knowing about the atrocities that the Germans committed, nobody told us about that. And uh, we weren't looking for prisoners to begin with. And as a consequence, I was very surprised to hear about it and to see what they intended to do with the Jewish people. When we got into northern France, the only thing they told us to look out for was heavy water. And of course, we didn't know what heavy water was. The only people that knew what heavy water was, was the scientific people that uh, knew all about it. Well, is it heavier than ordinary water? What is this? Well, we were fighting, we came across all kinds of towns, but we just would go through it and it was just another town. In other words, each town we took, we figured, well, we're getting closer to the end of the war. And so Dachau was just another uh, sub-camp city or whatever, we didn't know. I mean, rather, I didn't know. Didn't know it was a prison camp. Yeah, until afterward. 
after we went through the Ziegfried line, we kept going and, and kept going and going. We came across this sub-camp that says Dachau on it. And at that time, it was just another camp, another city, just like any one until went through it. Then when I saw the camp, and it was a flat ground, there were three piles on a flat ground, which I would say about eight, ten feet high. And I was so curious about what that was, because I saw that toward the evening. So I went back the next day, and um, the gate, they had a chain, but it was broken, so I went through there. There wasn't anybody in there as far as I saw, but I went to see what this pile was. It was all political prisoners that died, I guess. It was all stacked up. And then I saw this building, and I had to, was so curious to see what that was. And that's where I saw the oven. There were three that I saw. Well, it was right before the war ended. I would say maybe just, uh, gee, I couldn't tell you exactly, maybe a week, 10 days uh, before the war ended. It was toward the end of the war. Could have been uh, prior to that because there was uh, snow on the ground. Yeah. I don't know about German weather, but uh, snow always gives me the creeps. But uh, anyway... There were prisoners around there, but they were kind of hiding in the barracks. and You couldn't see from the outside in. It was all dark inside. But the cadavers that was piled up was almost too much for me, so I didn't get as curious as Sergeant Moray, but uh, it, was, it was something that uh, really turned, you, turned your stomach over. Well, the worst scene I saw was there was a horse stepped on a mine, and it blew almost all the inside out. And these liberated prisoners, they didn't eat anything for I don't know how many days because they were on the forced march. So when they found out they were liberated and they were hungry, the first thing they saw was the horse meat. And they were on this horse just like flies, raw meat. And I said, Jesus, but I guess when you're hungry, there's nothing you could do about it. And there was snow all over the place, but they were there eating the horse flesh. The next morning I saw them, and gee, there must have been, I don't know how many they're dead, because they overate. Well, my reaction was, if you are a human, that you could do such a thing to another human is something I couldn't understand, you know. It's, it's just like a human, uh, maybe killing a, a chicken or a, a pig. Why did they have to kill these people? I think the German psyche was such that uh, we couldn't understand it. The, the inhumanity was something that really opened your eyes. You couldn't understand why people would do the things that they did. Seeing these poor prisoners, about 90 pounds or 95 pounds, a guy that was originally six foot something. To see a man so shriveled up and everything, um, the man could be 19 or 20 years old and he looked like he was maybe 80 or 90 years old. You know, you've seen hunger of different magnitudes 
And in order to um, comprehend just exactly how, how famished and how hungry these people were, was to have them looking for food. I was on a truck that, uh, that had a borderline piece of metal that goes around the truck. We of the 442nd and the 522nd were notorious for exchanging stuff with other troops because we needed our rice. We didn't care what happened, you know. Here's some sugar, here's some cream, here's some powdered milk, whatever. Take it, but give us the rice. So in this manner, of course, we accumulated a lot of rice. And what happened was that as the rice uh, bags open up, you get some around the fringe of the trucks, you know, where it's level. And this truck that I was on actually happened to been been hauling rice the morning before. We had traded somebody for sugar and and we took the rice. But to see a, a poor fellow with just the palms of his hands go around the truck and just just whisk that uh, rice into his palms so that he could keep it was something to behold because uh, we didn't think anything of a handful of rice, but to him, it was really a life and death matter because he could clean it up and cook it and make soup out of it. And it was precious to him. And he asked me for other uh, subsistences. And at that time, Patton's army was going so fast that uh, we, we missed a lot of times to pick up our rations. And so ration was very scarce. And we, we still had to fight a war. And as a consequence, we couldn't give them all of our rations, but we did give them everything that we could. When I first saw these men in striped pajama-like clothing, I couldn't figure out who these people were. We got word that we're going to come to this sub-camp where they're taking all the prisoners out of Dachau, and they're forced marching them out. So we knew that most of the camps were going to be empty. We came across all these prisoners, and they, were, they didn't know exactly to bow to us or bow to the Germans. You know, they weren't sure if they were freed or not for a while. They didn't know which way to go now. When I got into camp, I didn't see anyone, only the dead bodies. The only contact I got with, with the political prisoner was a few days after they were marched out of camp. They were all skinny. They were skin and bone. And they only had that pajama in that ice-cold weather Gee, they were freezing, and their reaction was they were so happy that they were liberated. And I guess some of the weak ones, to them, it didn't make any difference. They were too weak to even understand that they were free. After the war finished, there was a lot of problem with the Polish prisoners because they got finding wine and and snobs and all that, I guess, and they were they became wild because now they were they were prisoners for such a long time, and now they're free. They didn't know what to do with themselves, I guess. I think one of the basic problems with the prisoners at that point was that uh, retaliation was foremost in their minds. If they had a rifle, I guess they would have killed every German that they could see. We were trying to keep them them apart from the others. But basically, we were combat troops, and we didn't have any time for that. We had to go to a point near Linz, Austria, and that's what we were told to do. So 
after surveying what, what we had seen there, then we all got back on our trucks and took off for other parts of Germany. You know, this interpreter that we had, which used to be a political prisoner, and he was asking us that he couldn't understand that we being Japanese, what were we doing in the United States Army? You know, especially when he heard Japan was fighting the United States. First he thought we were Chinese or something else. It took him a while for that to sink in, I guess, because we told him we were born in the United States. We heard about it, but and we figured that's a lot of rumors, but that they were killing uh, these political prisoners because they were Jewish. I said, oh, no, they can't be doing that kind of thing. It was just a, one of those rumors that they were, during the war. Then when I did see all these dead bodies, and then these oven that I saw that was so big, and there was, I saw three of them in a row, and I said, gee, I guess this is where it's really true that I heard about that, you know, as soon as they died, they just threw them in there and cremated them. But until I saw all that, I wasn't sure that it was true. So uh, all these people said they were forced march out of the camp. And they've been uh, walking for, I think, one bunch that we caught up was about three days or four. They said uh, they never stopped. They just kept marching. Up. And one day they woke up, and the guards that was around them, they're gone. And they couldn't understand what happened to them. Toward the end, you see dead body or torture or this and that didn't seem to do anything to us. Not to me. At the beginning it did, but toward the end of the war, we saw that every day. I think that the attitude of... our past with bad memories, tears of water, a forest of trees, we are the fruit and the moisture, we shan't forget the accidents Chimneys were smoking, the world turned long. How could this happen? 
J.M. and the A.M. from JEP, Six Million Tears. Uh, we are we will continue with our Yom HaShoah programming here at the J.M. and the A.M. This is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Yom HaShoah Hagvura. Today is the uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day. We will uh, welcome special guests onto our airwaves coming up between now and 9 a.m., Keep it right here at JM in the AM. Meanwhile, in the background is Galay Tzal. Our news from Israel is next at JM in the AM. זוכרים ומזכירים את ששת המיליונים במדינת ישראל ועל אדמת פולין. בשעה הקרובה יצא לדרכו מצד החיים מאושוויץ לבירקנאו, בהשתתפות נשיא המדינה, ראשי זרועות מערכת הביטחון ושנים עשר אלף בני נוער. זוהי שירת אני מאמין של קבוצה מיפן, שלראשונה משגרת נציגים לאירוע. ממצעד החיים בפולין, מדווח כתבנו צחי דבוש. הנסיג שלצידו הרמטכ"ל, המפכ"ל, ראש השב"כ וראש המוסד, יצעדו ממחנה אושוויץ אל בירקנאו. בסיום המצעד יחל הטקס המרכזי בו ינאמו נשיא המדינה ונשיא פולין. אז אמר שלמה ארצי, צפוי לשיר בטקס ולבצע את השיר "אני נושא עמי" אל מול אלפי משתתפים כאן במצעד החיים. ובגלי צה"ל נעביר בשידור חי את מצעד החיים בשעה ארבע אחרי הצהריים. ומיד אחרי החדשות, בקולם שורדי שואה במפגשים אישיים עם חיילי גלי צה"ל בשיתוף יד ושם. 
אהרון עינת נולד בווילנה ובגטו בעיר העביר את רוב שנות המלחמה. בשיחה עם תוראית גילי גבריאן סיפר לה על הנחמה והמפלט שמצא בקריאת ספרים. בלעתי ספרים. מה זה נתן לי? להפיג את ה... להתעלם, לברוח מהמצב הקשה שקיים בגטו. יכולתי להתבודד בצורה כזאת להעביר את המצב הקשה. זה היה טוב לנפש. אירועי יום הזיכרון לשואה ולגבורה ינהלו בהצהרות בקיבוצים לוחמי הגטאות ויד מרדכי בשעה שבע ושלושים בערב. וכעת לשאר חדשות היום, האם טראמפ נסוג לאחור? בציוט שפרסם לפני זמן קצר הוא כתב, מעולם לא נקבתי במועד למתקפה בסוריה. כתבתנו יערה אגמי חורי. אולי התקיפה תתקיים בקרוב מאוד, ואולי היא תתקיים בעוד זמן רב, כך כתב נשיא ארצות הברית טראמפ בטוויטר והוסיף, בכל אופן הממשל שלי עשה עבודה מעולה בשחרור האזור מדאעש, אז איפה התודה לאמריקה, כך לדבריו. בתוך כך הקבינט בבריטניה ייפגש בשעות הקרובות כדי להחליט האם וכיצד לפעול בסוריה. גם שר החוץ של צרפת הודיע כי פריז תגבש את עמדתה בימים הקרובים. ובזמן שהמערב שוקל האם לתקוף בסוריה, מזהיר אסד בטלוויזיה הממלכתית בארצו, כל פעולה תוקפנית תערער את היציבות באזור. הוארך ב-11 ימים מעצרו של לוחם יחידת דובדבן, החשוד בפליטת הכדור, שהרג את סמל ראשון שחר סטרוק, זיכרונו לברכה. ההחלטה להארכת המעצר באה על רקע הבקשה להעמיק את החקירה סביב סיבת הירי, שהייתה ככל הנראה משחק בנשק. מנכ"ל משרד התקשורת המושעה שלמה פילבר שנחקר בתיק 4000 פרשת בזק וואלה יעזוב סופית את תפקידו אולם כעת הוא מנהל מגעים עם נציבות שירות המדינה בדבר תנאי הפרישה כתובתנו עמית חדד מזכירה כי פילבר מושעה כבר למעלה מחצי שנה ולאחר שחתם על הסכם עד מדינה הוא ממתין להליך המשמעתי נגדו בנציבות ומזג האוויר לסיום, הטמפרטורות רגילות לעונה, מחר עלייה ניכרת בטמפרטורות ויעשה חם מהרגיל. אלה החדשות שעורך מירון ששון.
on this Yom HaShoah. Michael Isaacson conducting the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra in a piece called Occupation Folk Songs from the era of World War II. An album entitled Heritage here at JM and AM. Our Yom HaShoah program continues on this Thursday morning. Voices of the Shoha next on JM and the AM. of uh, the U.S. troops towards the German people and the German army changed from place to place. I, I imagine that if, if the German troops had stayed there, the, the guards and so forth in that camp, we would have probably slaughtered them. There's no question about it. But as it happens, there wasn't anybody there. And nobody could tell us where they were. It just proved to me, basically, how cruel man can be towards another man. What I saw I, I, with my own eyes in, in this subcamp is all these dead bodies, and they all had these striped pajama-type clothing on, and there was snow on the ground, and it happened, and I saw it. As far as the crematoriums are concerned, that really sends chills up and down your spine when you see that because you know what's there. But what Lawrence saw and what, what I saw up there were, were there, they didn't get rid of the bodies in time to clean this place up, and they're stacked up like cordwood. The Germans didn't expect uh, the United States soldiers to be coming through there that fast, so they didn't have that much time to uh, get rid of all that evidence that they left behind. Now, when you see it, I'm sure that the place has been cleaned up. And although there are some pictures and signs of showing you 
how they were abused, it doesn't ring the same bell because of the fact there's no stench there, there's no blood on the floor. I would like to see all of us speak up if you think unfairness is being done. Maybe we'll be able to keep our democracy, who knows. Rabbi Abraham Klausner is an example of an individual who went against accepted norms, who acted contrary to U.S. Army regulations to make a difference, to save lives. Rabbi Klausner entered the U.S. Army in 1944 and was placed at Dachau after its liberation in 1945. His true story is an astounding reminder that one person can make a difference. My name is Klausner, Abraham Klausner. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1915. Our class, which was the 1943 class, was rushed because we were designated as replacements for rabbis who were going into the chaplaincy corps. Academic year was over, I was accepted into the military. That would be in 1944. When uh, Dachau was overrun, the army immediately brought in uh, hospital units. It wasn't the kind of a liberation where you say you're free now and go wherever you want to go. The army came in and locked the camps immediately so that the people who were prisoners of the Nazis were now not prisoners but were confined. They were behind barbed wire and they were guards. Some got out of the camp during the hectic first days, but basically uh, the camps were locked. A great number of the people were ill. And a lot of them in the first days of liberation stuffed themselves with food and uh, whatever they could get their hands on. And this uh, turned out to be detrimental to them. Part of my job was to bury the dead. In the first days, the dead were laying all over the place, especially where the boxcars came in with them from different parts of Germany. During the day, the trucks would take the bodies out and place each one in a grave, and then I would come out in the evening and recite a service, say some words. But nobody was there. I was, I was the only one present, except a short while afterwards, one of the liberated asked me if he could come with me, and I would take him. Dachau, I felt strange. It was overwhelming. I was a bit envious of the doctors, nurses. At least they had some kind of expertise to do something. What was I going to do? I wasn't going to start preaching to them. I felt completely inadequate. And so I started to walk down the row, looked at each barrack, and finally I stopped at one decided I was going to walk into that barrack. The door led into a little kind of an alcove, and there they were. It was a desperate scene. 
place had hardly an opening for light to come in. Nothing in it except shelves. I just stood there, I was wearing a chaplain's insignia, but no one seemed to pay any attention to me. It was a strange world. Figures were moving around uh, as if in a shadow. Finally, somebody walked over to me, stared at me, saw my insignia, and simply asked me a question out of nowhere. Do you know my uncle in Toledo? So I kind of hemmed and hawed a bit and said that I wasn't from Toledo. There was nothing I could do. Another figure came, another question, and the questions fell into that kind of a pattern. They were asking me if I knew certain people. A voice came from one of the shelves. It was a thin, crying voice. Do you know my brother? I couldn't see the figure, it was too dark. The other figure seemed to move aside to let the voice come forward. And the voice began to tell me that he had a brother, came to the United States, and became a rabbi. As soon as he gave me the name, I said to him, I know your brother, he is here in Europe, and I'm going to bring him to you. That was the turning point in my life. I knew then when I walked out of that barracks that there was work to be done and I was going to do it. I then began to set goals for myself. I wanted to know who was in the camp. And so I got people together and we were going to collect the names. I had to get paper, I had to get all the materials necessary. Rabbi Klausner met a doctor at a nearby camp and together they decided to travel and look for surviving Jews. They collected survivors' names and tried to solve their problems. Problems the U.S. military was not prepared to handle. When a military unit would come across a pocket of Jews, they really didn't know what to do with them. The policy of the United States government, especially under Eisenhower, was you take these liberated back to the countries from which they were driven. And you create inducements, so you give them cartons of what they call 10-in-1 rations, get them to go, and people were moving. Trucks were leaving regularly for the different countries. And the policy could not account for Jews because there was no place to send Jews to. The army was not equipped to handle liberated Jews. Rabbi Klausner found problems throughout the region. Poor conditions, lack of food, things got so bad that there were rebellions. The U.S. military responded by shooting at the rebelling people and leaving conditions as they were. Klausner met with the commanding officers to try and resolve these problems, and in June of 45, he wrote a report on what was happening and sent it to American Jewish leaders. He never received a single response. At the end of June 1945, a notice went up in Dachau that Klausner's hospital unit was to get some time off, a furlough, and they were to leave Dachau. That was a miserable trip, emotionally. 
I felt that I wasn't entitled to rest. I hadn't been with the unit through their experiences and I hadn't done what they did. So we got to this beautiful recreation hotel. Each truck unloaded, soldiers, everyone jumped off, rushed towards the hotel. I held back and when all the trucks were unloaded, I was still left. And now the trucks began to move around the circle. I grabbed the tailgate of the sixth truck, was back in the truck and back to Dachau. I went over to the 127th Evac Hospital and I said to him, uh, I'm going to be reassigned to the 127th. Commanding officer said, find a place. There were no accommodations. We didn't live in rooms. You found a spot someplace. You took one of these folding cots. You opened it up. That's where you live. And now I was with 127, but technically I was AWOL. And that began a second phase of my career. Now that I knew I was unassigned and had no authority, I felt free to do whatever I wanted. With an amazing flurry of activity, Rabbi Klausner went about Germany setting up programs to help the liberated Jews of Germany. Before Klausner made changes, sick Jews in Germany were being put into hospitals run by non-Jewish German doctors. Jewish patients were shocked, scared, and unwilling to go to medical appointments. Klausner set up organized hospitals for the survivors, run by Jewish doctors. I came upon a monastery called St. Tertullian, and I found a small group of Jews there. The German army had taken over the main sanctuary of the monastery and used it as a hospital. I decided, together with the Jewish doctor that was in charge, Dr. Zalman Grinberg, that we would turn St. Etienne into a Jewish hospital. St. Etienne became our large Jewish hospital. That was the first of the hospitals that we established. One day coming back from a trip around Bavaria, there was a group huddled. I stopped the jeep and they came over and told me that they were from a camp on the other side of Munich called Freising and they'd been ordered out of the camp. There were 60 trucks waiting to take them away. They didn't want to go. I told them to go back to the camp and uh, not to prepare to leave. And this chaplain said, they're not going to move. Rabbi Klausner had no legal authority to tell these Jews they could stay to live in these displaced person or DP camps. The next morning, a command car came and ordered Klausner to Freising, where he was put in front of the commanding general of the area. And there were two colonels, and the first colonel began shouting. He just opened up a barrage of accusations. And when he was through, I simply said, you got 1,200 people here, human beings, you're kicking them around, you treat them as commodities, no, no respect for them, you don't even tell them why they're moving, what they're moving to. 
They are trying to establish themselves with an address. They have no address. The other colonel listened, he said, Chaplin has a point. The colonels brought Klausner to an officer in the region who might be able to explain these Jews and the 60 trucks waiting to take them away. He exploded. He said, there are no Jews. And I, I was a little bit flabbergasted. <laughs> and then he said, look at that board. And it listed the peoples in the camp by nationalities. See, he said, no Jews. I uh, said, if there are no Jews, Colonel, what do you need the 60 trucks for? And he ordered me out. Well, I went out, and uh, I was in the company of the two colonels. They told me Patton was coming into the area. Patton doesn't want any DPs, and the order is to get them out. And then I told, but you're not going to have the 1,200 Jews because I'm going to take him. This colonel said to me, listen, chaplain, if you ever need me, I'll tell you where you can find me. And I needed him. His, his name was Richmond. Richmond would come to be very important to Klausner in the coming months. Immediately following the war, the U.S. Army did a strange thing. They took enemies of the war and put them together to live in displaced person DP camps. The Army took Jews, Poles, and Germans, three groups who were bitter enemies during the war, and strangely enough placed them side by side. Klausner was appalled, and he directed his energy toward creating segregated camps where Jews could be safe. The camps were mixed camps of all European nations. The army was against separate camps. The anti-Semitism continued. Day by day, I had to go to different camps to find some of our people killed by others in the camp. And I felt that there was no salvation to this situation unless we had separate camps. I was confident that within a day, a week, the Jewish community of America would be there with all its resources. American help from the Jewish community did not come. Klausner continued to organize DP camps to safely house Jews, even as American army personnel said they were against segregation. He went to get help from his friend, Colonel Richmond. Now, when I came to Richmond and argued the case, we said, we are Americans. We don't believe in segregation. And I said to him, well, that's very good, except uh, <laughs> you want to pick up the dead every day? Is that what you want to do? I said, you don't have to do anything contrary to policy. All you have to do is make room in camps. I'll do the rest. Now, you go down to Feldefink, and you say to the Poles, for example, wouldn't you prefer being among other Poles? Take them to a Polish uh, installation or the Hungarian or something. Soon as you take them out, I will bring others in, and eventually what you're going to find is that all your camps are segregated and you're going to have it easier. He agreed he would move certain peoples at certain times. I was given all the support that I needed. In a short period of time, we began to have Jewish camps. Bear in mind, that in all this time, we have no outside help. We have no American Joint Distribution Committee. 
no UNRWA, no Red Cross. We had nothing. Everything we were doing is contrary to military policy, except that there were military people were making it possible for me. If it weren't for certain military people, I couldn't do this. After successfully creating safe hospitals and DP camps for Jews, Klausner now focused his energy on creating a wider social and political organization to protect the interest of the survivors. He called it the Central Committee of Liberated Jews of Germany. It became the big center where Jews from all over Europe now began to come. JM in the AM, we will continue with Voices of the Shoah here on a JM in the AM Thursday morning broadcast. Today is Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura. Today is Holocaust Remembrance Day. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmas Arav Zeb and Yosef Alevi, and Echonishmas Esther Basar Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We say in the Avarachamim, Minisharim Kalu, they were swifter than eagles, umearoyos gaveru, and stronger than lions, la kanom, in order to do the will of their Creator. The six million who perished, al kiddush Hashem, men, women, children, even babies, we remember their deeds, we remember the world that turned its back on Klau Yisrael, and how so many could have been saved, but weren't. On this day, we remember that at a time in this world, when there was Onis Rachmana Patre, under the situation and the conditions of torture, the threat of annihilation, Jews were exempt from many of the mitzvos. Yet, they were Mosa Nefesh, they self-sacrificed to perform as many mitzvos as they could, even sometimes risking their life not to eat on Yom Kippur, to keep the Shabbos, to do all of the mitzvahs that they possibly could, including eating matzah on Pesach and sitting in a sukkah on Sukkos. How wonderful it is that we have their lives, their noble lives, and all the acts of Mesiris Nefesh to continue to guide us in this Golos. There was an unbelievable question that was asked in the Shilas Uchuvas Mimamakim, the responsa written during and after the Holocaust by Rabbi Ephraim Meshri. There was one man who, unfortunately, a survivor of the camps, came with the following Shila. The Nazis one time saw him trying to put tefillin on. They noticed that he was putting on the tefillin shalyad, the tefillin of the arm. In their wrath, they came and beat him mercilessly. They were not satisfied until they had tattooed, engraved on his arm in the place of the tefillin shalyad, a cross. This survivor comes and asks the following question. He would like to have the cross removed. He would like, if he has to keep it, when he wears tefillin, to put a small, perhaps a shirt sleeve or a cloth on top of it. He is embarrassed about it and would like to hide it. Can he do any of those etzos which he had thought about? Rabbi Yashri told him, 
God forbid. Don't you ever be embarrassed. Don't you ever be ashamed. You wear it proudly. You put the tefillin right on your arm. You show everybody, Netzach Yisrael, that Klau Yisrael is victorious, that we are eternal, that you survived, that you had endured for doing a mitzvah, such torture, and you will continue to show that proudly as an os, as a sign to everyone that we are survivors, that we will continue, that the mitzvahs are dear to us. And Be'ez Hashem, may we soon see the day, when Mashiach will come, and all of those that perished will once again rise and be reunited together with their families and dance together and sing together. May that day come soon.
Michael Isaacson and the uh, Israel Philharmonic Orchestra from the Museum of Jewish Heritage release on this Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day, a piece called Childhood, the folk song suite arranged by Michael Isaacson. JM and the AM on this Yom HaShoah, I thank the listeners who are pointing out how we are helping them stay in the correct mood for this day. It is Holocaust Remembrance Day. We continue with Voices of the Shoah. Ruth Lichtenstein, five minutes away, the director of Project Witness, coming up here at JM in the AM. After successfully creating safe hospitals and DP camps for Jews, Klausner now focused his energy on creating a wider social and political organization to protect the interest of the survivors. He called it the Central Committee of Liberated Jews of Germany. It became the big center where Jews from all over Europe now began to come. We have an organization, but they have no authority. They don't, can't even travel. They have no identity cards. They are nobody. We take the ambulances, we rush in and take out the sick wherever they are and bring them to St. Etilien, and then we have a TB hospital. We're segregating camps. We uh, set up manufacturing firms together with Germans. We had to find ways of getting printers. It was illegal for a printer to run a press. Now, we were in the passport business, too. Schools, educational systems, uh, we're trying to build up the food situation. The people were eating as little as possible. They were taking the food and bartering it with the Germans. That's where the first clothes came from, first lipstick, first brassiere, first pair of stockings. Still, we don't have the American Joint Distribution Committee, we don't have UNRWA doing anything. The American Joint misunderstood the problems. They never came around to see the nature of the problem and to respond to it effectively. They are to be charged with uh, gross stupidity or negligence or just incompetence. When I wrote to Joint and asked them for medical supplies, they told me they weren't available. When I asked for a Yiddish typewriter, it was unavailable. Anything I asked for was unavailable. The end of August, the middle of August, the American Joint Distribution Committee appeared. Of course, when they appeared, uh, they appeared in the form of one person. And he came with a uh, truck and he announced, we're here. And I kind of smiled, I said, good, what have you got? He says, well, I got a, two other personnel. Do you have anything, I said, to, in terms of helping the people? So, no, but uh, this will come later. I said to uh, one of my assistants there, if you see the truck down there, will you go down and steal the gasoline? He came out and he noticed what was happening and he started to make an issue of it and I told him, just record it as the first contribution that the American Joint Distribution Committee has made to the liberated of Germany. <laughs> we were in the Deutsches Museum. People were coming looking for family. And then they would go onto a big white wall and they began to write notes on the wall. They would read the wall and leave a note themselves. We put out a newspaper, Unser Weg. Well, that became an important instrument. It was the first newspaper that people could read in Yiddish and know what's going on. It came out every Friday. Later on, other newspapers were published, but this one continued from the beginning to the end of the whole period. At one point, the committee was uh, recognized as a legal entity. 
With illicit help from American Army officers, Klausner secured the use of buildings, equipment, and materials for his organization. He endured harassment from Army officers who were against his actions. At the same time, Rabbi Klausner was earning respect from other officers who knew of his work and knew they could rely on him for help if they needed it. One day, Colonel Richmond came in to see me, and he said, a very important person is coming to Germany to look into the DP situation. The Army has ordered me to prepare an itinerary for him. He placed this itinerary in front of me, and I looked at it, and I said, uh, of course, this is not an itinerary to see anything. This is an itinerary not to see. He said, that's why I'm here. I can't do otherwise, but you can. The important person coming was Earl G. Harrison, sent by the U.S. State Department to investigate reports of horrible conditions in the DP camps. The Army planned a tour for Harrison, but it carefully bypassed the most problematic areas. Rabbi Klausner revised Harrison's tour. Harrison came to Dachau and I indicated his itinerary would not serve a purpose, that if he wanted to, I would develop the itinerary, I would travel with him, and I would discuss the problems. That trip became the substance for the Harrison Report. When Harrison returned to the United States, President Truman got in touch with Eisenhower, and Eisenhower issued a letter dated August 22nd in which, for the first time, the liberated Jews were given a certain amount of freedom. They were not confined in camps anymore. Harrison's report was instrumental for bringing better conditions to the displaced person camps of Europe. By the end of 1946, hundreds of thousands of Jews had escaped Soviet-controlled Eastern Europe with hopes of immigrating to Palestine and the United States, causing a tremendous influx of refugees into the DP camps. We started off with 14,000 Jews. We ended up with a couple of hundred thousand. These were Jews in flight coming now from Eastern Europe, especially after the pogroms. The anti-Semitism was rife as Jews returned. So you now had this great movement of Jews across uh, from Eastern Europe into Germany. Now, the army still operating on the policy that the best way to solve the problem of Europe was repatriation. They were going to do everything to keep them from crossing the border into Germany. I then decided that I was going to help them across the border. I, uh, organized trucks going up into Prague and bringing people back into Munich. We provided food, housing for the Bricha people, the collection of guns and ammunition, arranging for peoples going out of Germany to France, to Marseille for the ships. Mark Clark, the general in charge of Italy, discovered the trail going from Prague across to Austria and to Italy and one of our chaplains, Gene Lipman, had to pay the price for it. He was brought up for court-martial because he was active in the Prague centers. For Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, in September of 1945, Klausner made an appeal to a filled Munich congregation. Have your American relatives and friends send packages of assistance to survivors. He said to address the packages to Rabbi Wall, the 9th Division Army chaplain. The appeal worked. 
and packages soon began to arrive at Rabbi Wall's office on a huge scale. Packages began to arrive, and the commanding officer called Wall. He commended him, told him that was a wonderful thing to do. So Wall would then load his jeep and bring the packages into Munich. Numbers grew, and so we had to find a building where we could do this on a, on a grand scale. The amount of packages increased to the point where the postal lines were clogged. And now the inspector general came into the picture and reprimanded the commanding officer who had commended Chaplain Wall, and Wall was up for court-martial. He had to leave the service. Uh, but the, the program continued. Rabbi Klausner took many risks and wrote many false documents in the course of getting his important work done. One false document was written to get a representative of his organization, Zaman Grinberg, into a U.S. Army transport to New York so he could attend an American Jewish conference. After the conference, two inspectors came to Klausner's German office and had a few questions. What happened to him? I said, he returned. So one of them says to me, <laughs> says, can you prove to us that the man you sent and the man that returned is the same man? You understand why this is serious? Supposing you had taken a leading Nazi and got him out of the country, it would be a tremendous embarrassment for us. Well, we went through a series of meetings, and eventually it ended up with one of them said, I understand you are from New Haven. He said, I'm going back home, and I'm planning to be married. Would you possibly be in New Haven at the time that I get married? It would be wonderful to have you officiate, which was a nice touch. Rabbi Klausner continued to find ways to go around the law to get things done. He continued to write false documents. He worked behind the scenes, finding underground means of bringing supplies to Jews in need. He helped Jews escape Europe and emigrate to Israel and America, all the time fighting the status quo. Finally, the army decided Klausner had caused enough trouble and sent him back to the United States, but not before he had fundamentally changed conditions for survivors, bringing them better food, clothing, medical assistance, spiritual support, and community. He brought survivors a rekindled hope for future happiness that not everyone in the world had abandoned them. J.M. in the A.M., Voices of the Shoah. Remembrances of the Holocaust on this Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day. It's day 12 in the counting of the Omer, day 12. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. I mentioned we'd be joined by uh, significant guests on the topic of Yom HaShoah. With us live via telephone is our good friend, Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein. In addition to uh, publishing Hamodia, she is the publisher of the Hamodia newspaper. She is director of Project Witness, which uh, we've uh, outlined on this show many, many times. has had a profound effect, uh, not only in our community, but specifically on the younger people and others, of course, as well. Uh, but a profound impact on, um, on those educators that are responsible for uh, shaping the thoughts and uh, shaping the opinion uh, and the knowledge of uh, the youngsters in our community. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me. Good morning. I appreciate you joining us. Could you remind us about your parents and where they spent World War II? 
My parents, um, both of them, came from Poland. My father left Poland in 1940, um, hoping to be reunited with his wife and little boy uh, later on, and unfortunately it never happened. My mother was for five and a half years under the Nazis. She was 10 years old when the war broke out. She was 15 and a half when she was liberated in Warsaw on January 18, 1945. She, her brother, and two hours later, her brother was arrested by the Soviet army on a suspicion that he collaborated with the Nazis. They were reunited in Israel and Palestine two and a half years later. I am a proud child of two Holocaust survivors. No question about that. Speaking with Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, you decided at some point as uh, the Jewish people, and especially the state of Israel with the brilliance of forming a Yom HaShoah and insisting that uh, people spend the day in deep thought about what happened during World War II, you decided to formalize things a bit more and to bring a formal program of education both to schools through textbooks and lectures and to the community in general through the work of Project Witness with educators and uh, with people in general in the community. Why was it so important to you with your background to formalize this educational process? I don't see it uh, as uh, a brilliant idea. I see it as a life mission. I uh, lost my father at a young age, and I realized at a very young age uh, that uh, the uh, the survivors uh, build a kind of uh, wall in front of them in order to pretend to us, the children, and to the rest of the world that everything is fine and let's go on with life. My mother spoke, my father wrote. And when I lost my father, I decided that I will try to continue his mission. And his mission was to educate the younger generation that we should not forget. So it wasn't a matter of Yom HaShoah. Uh, we know about the joke that, you know, the Ashkenazim have Yom HaShoah. And uh, some people think that we can remember one day a year and forget about the rest. I do believe strongly that this is not the case. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein is with us. Is there anything that's going on in the world today in 2018 that to you, and I know you were not there, but based on all your research and all the stories, that to you sounds and looks similar to what was going on in Europe around the time of World War II? Absolutely. Unfortunately, we do see rise of anti-Semitism, not only in Europe, but here in the States. We, uh, I would say, would like to believe that we have enough challenges in life, and therefore Holocaust education can go 
on the side. We would like to believe that in Europe it's bad. It is indeed very bad. If we look what happened, unfortunately, in France yep. a few weeks ago when a Holocaust survivor was burned, murdered, burned uh, by her neighbor, younger neighbor. If we are looking at what happened in England with the Labour Party, a leader and is open anti-Semitism. But let's concentrate and see what is going on here in the United States. According to the ADL, anti-Semitic incidents rose 86% in the United States in 2017. If we check what's going on on campuses, the numbers are bad. Anti-Semitic incidents on campuses up 89%. We are talking about uh, harassment, vandalism, assault. We would like to believe that everything is okay, but everything is not okay, and there is a rise of anti-Semitism here in the United States, and we have to fight it, and we have to remember what happened uh, uh, over 70 years ago, close to 80 already, and we have to see what to do, that the younger generation at least should know what happened to their grandparents, or even if they are not descendants of Holocaust survivors. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein is with us. She's responsible for Project Witness. Uh, she publishes Hamodia on a daily basis. I know, as you just said, uh, that one day is not just one day, and I understand that it is all year round that we have to focus on the atrocities of, uh, of the Holocaust. But, but let's utilize today to end this conversation with a message. What would your message be to both young and old on this Yom HaShoah? The, my message is that we as Jews, we as individuals, we as a group, we have to remember. And we have to remember because we believe in the whole and we say it every day. We have to remember because of what's going on around us today. And we also have to remember the positive end. Yeah. Let's look around and see how we rebuild the generation and how, you know, all around us, uh, orthodoxy is blossoming, we do have our challenges, but after all, we rebuild a generation. So this is on the positive side, but right. we cannot ignore yeah. this challenge as well. It's interesting because um, you grew up at a time when very few people had grandparents. And today, I'm sure you take unbelievable nachas when you go to weddings and events and you see four and sometimes even five generations together. I can tell you that we were very lucky if we had grandparents. Right. I was one of the lucky ones. Wow. But today, it's a different story. Yeah. And Baruch Hashem for what we have. But at the same time, let's remember, we definitely should continue to be aware, very much aware of what's going on around us. We'll continue to remind everybody about your great work. Uh, thank you so much today for joining us. It's much appreciated. Thank you. Mrs. Ruth Lichtenstein, publisher of Hamodia, director of Project Witness, always with a strong message 
about uh, 70 years ago, whether to, whether it is Yom HaShoah or not. More coming up at JM in the AM. As you know, there is a special Kelmale that is recited for those Kedoshim, uh, those who were uh, murdered during World War II. In this case, it's being conducted by IDF Chief Cantor Shai Abramson. Stanley Stahl is going to be joining us coming up, Executive Vice President of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. That will be next right here at JM in the AM. Oh, <laughs> 
J.M. in the A.M. with Shai Abramson of the uh, IDF Choir, um, the Kelmale, in memory of the six million. Four minutes after eight o'clock, it is America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com. On the NachumSiegel Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline tomorrow, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Our Thursday programming follows JM and the AM at uh, 9 a.m. On That's Life, Miriam L. Wallach at 10.30 Eastern Time this morning will be joined by Sally Schatzkis, drama therapist and founder of Witness Theater. Appropriate for this Yom HaShoah. Our live lunch will start at 11 o'clock. We will try to make that as appropriate as possible. Stanley Stahl, who is named for her uncle, is executive vice president of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. JFR continues its work of providing monthly financial assistance to some 350 aged and needy righteous Gentiles living in 20 countries. Its Holocaust teacher education program has become a standard for teaching the history of the Holocaust and educating teachers and students about the significance of the righteous as moral and ethical exemplars. For information, jfr.org. Stanley Stahl, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. At what point did this incredible concept of righteous Gentiles during World War II saving Jews, at one point uh, was it decided that the support of those righteous Gentiles should become an organized effort under the banner of JFR. The point came when Rabbi Harold Schoys, the blessed memory, who is from New York but was in California, and he met a righteous Gentile, and he realized the Jewish people have a double memory, a memory of evil, but a memory of blessed righteousness. And then he learned, he, he did research, and he realized that most of the righteous continue to live where they save Jews most behind what we know is the former Soviet Union or behind the Iron Curtain, and many were living in poverty. And he felt the Jewish people, Claudius Roel, had an obligation to repay a debt of gratitude to these men and women 
who risk their lives and often the lives of their families to save Jews from death. Many people save total strangers. Yeah, you know, I, I've i met over the years, do- well, dozens actually would be too many, but but certainly a handful of people who literally, on at least an annual basis, if not more often, will deliver gifts and thank yous and, and be in touch with people during holiday season who literally save their siblings, their children, uh, who would, or saved other family members during the Holocaust. I just never realized that there was an organized effort to recognize these people and help those who are in great need. The organization was founded in the late 80s. I've been with the organization since 1992, hmm. so I'm in my 26th year. At our height, we were funding 1,850 Hasidei Ha'umot Righteous Among the Nations, living in 34 countries. How do they react? What happens in a typical situation when someone like that realizes that you and the organization are ready to pay tribute to them, to repay them, so to speak? Most of them, in order to be recognized by Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Authority, you needed to have done the rescue with, for pure altruistic reasons. Mm-hmm. Not that you got paid. It was, yes, I'm taking you in because it's the right thing to do. Right. And so most did not expect any reward then, during the Shoah, or now. And many do not ask for help. We just started funding a 98-year-old man <laughs> who lives on Collins Avenue in Miami Beach, a Hungarian rescuer, and he was recognized 20 years ago. He didn't need the money. He's 98. He needs the money for medical care. Right. So he was our last person that we just started funding. And he says, I, I don't need it. I mean, they're too proud. They'll get by. And they're in their late 80s, 90s, and we have rescuers in their hundreds. You know, 101, 102. Stanley Stahl is with us, Executive Vice President, Jewish Foundation for the righteous, I assume. Uh, uh, I, I assume there has to be some rescuees affiliated with the organization. Some people that are actually saved. Am I right? There are. We, as some of our volunteers, are men and women who were saved. Unfortunately, like our survivors, um, some of those that were rescued have have, have also passed on. Right. But we we still see them because we try to do a reunion every year where we reunite the Jewish survivor and the person who saved um, the Jewish survivor. And they haven't seen each other since the end of the war. How many times in the last 25 years have you asked yourself, would I do the same thing? Um, Often at my (laughs) shul, I was very active in social action. I have an adopted son. Wow. And if if you lived in Eastern Europe, not necessarily Western Europe, and you were caught helping a Jewish person or hiding a Jewish person, the penalty was death for you and your family. And there's one thing to make a decision for yourself, but for your family, your children, and in, and during the war, many generations lived together. So you had grandparents and parents and grandchildren living together in the same apartment or house. And you, at, when, I t- when I first started working in 1992 for the foundation, Shabbat dinner conversation was, what would we have done? And you'll never know until one is tested, and may we never be tested. Amen to that. 
Speaking with Stanley Stahl, Executive Vice President, Jewish Foundation for the Righteous, I hate to put you on the spot. Yes. But is there one story of rescue that stands out for you? One that's just so remarkable or in some way stands out? There is one story. The rescuer is a blessed memory, Jerzy Belitsky. And he was in the first transport of Polish politicals to Auschwitz in June of 1940. So that meant his number was a low number. And if you know anything about camp language, it was a low number. I think his number was 243. He met a woman named Scylla. Scylla had been deported to Auschwitz from Poland with her mother, her father, and her brother, and they immediately went to the the gas chambers. He met Scylla. He fell in love with her. In January of 1944, he tells her, gets a message to her, I'm going to get you out of here. And it took him six months, and he, he spoke fluent German, blonde hair, blue eyes. I met him when he was 89, and he got a, a, a Nazi officer's uniform. He got a gun. He forged documents, and I believe July 22, 1944, he walks into her part of the camp and asks for prisoner number such and such, and he literally marches her out of the Auschwitz-Birkenau complex, which is, at, I think, 40 square kilometers. They walk at night, they hide during the day, and he puts her with a Polish farm family, Polish Catholic farm family in southeastern Poland. He joins the uh, AKA, the Polish underground, the Army Krajowa. She, the front, you know, the front goes back and forth. She leaves and goes to Sweden after the front passes. He goes back to find her, and the family tells him she's dead because she had been sending packages from Sweden, and they thought if Scylla and Yerzy got together again, the packages would stop. Mm-hmm. And they tell her he's dead. She marries a survivor, comes to New York, and many Holocaust survivors that I know from Poland sometimes have someone who helps them in the house who happens to be Polish. She's sitting having coffee with this, her late, this lady who's helping her in the home, and she's telling her the story, and she said he's dead, and the woman says, no. He's alive. He was on Polish television. This is 1981 during martial law in Poland. They find his phone number. Martial law meant all foreign calls went through Warsaw. He picks up the phone, and it's Scylla. And he meets her for the first time in the Krakow airport, bringing 39 red roses for each of the years they were apart. His wife was convinced he was going to leave her. He did not. His wife passes on, her husband passes on, and they see each other 15 more times, either in America or in Poland. And the last time he went to visit her was to visit her grave at one of the Jewish cemeteries on Long Island. It's a true love story. Unbelievable. Stanley Stahl, she is the executive vice president of the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. On this Yom HaShoah, we remind you to visit JFR. Org. I assume you guys exist on donations, am I right? Yes, we do. People could donate on the website? Yes, they can. JFR.org, if you want to continue this Kiddush Hashem of um, helping Jews associated with JFR and, and others, of course, uh, to help fund those who saved Jews during the Holocaust. Righteous Gentiles recognized by Yad Vashem who are being financially assisted by the Jewish Foundation for the Righteous. Stanley, thanks so much for joining us on this day. Thank you for having us. JM and the AM, Yom HaShoah Hagvura, Thursday, day 12 in the counting of the Omer. If you forgot to count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. More coming up on this Yom HaShoah 5778 at JM and the AM.
JM in the AM, Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura, Holocaust Remembrance Day, uh, utilizing, uh, in addition to Voices of the Shoah and our special guests who have joined us so far this morning, utilizing the Heritage Album, uh, composer Michael Isaacson and the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra with some of the sounds, some of the tunes of World War II. Day 12 in the counting of the Omer. If you've got the count last night, make sure to do so sometime today. Coming up, Malcolm Honline tomorrow, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He'll join us. 7.40 Eastern Time tomorrow. Yeah, there is a lot to talk about, all right. That's for sure. Coming up at 9 o'clock, Charlie Harari with Unlocking Greatness. In fact, uh, I want to thank Avrami. He sent me the title of Charlie's um, discussion. Today, Charlie is going to take an in-depth look at the topic of fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it, coming up at 9 o'clock. 9.30, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder with Spin Class. Allison Joseph, Stew in the City Speaks at 10 a.m. Miriam Wallach and That's Life will have Sally Schatzkis, drama therapist and founder of Witness Theater. We will do our best to continue our Yom HaShoah theme during the live lunch today starting at 11 a.m. And then we'll go to Throwback Thursday and the rest of our schedule. I want to thank our friends at Kedem, sponsoring our Erev Shabbos music mix beginning tonight and, of course, continuing tomorrow. Thank you to Kedem, Royal Wine Corporation. I want to thank our friends at the Uden's Appliances and remind everybody that if you are, in fact, looking for a brand new refrigerator, stove, oven, microwave, dishwasher, UdensAppliances.com. UdensAppliances.com. Also want to thank um, those who've been contributing on the FJBUnity.org, FJB, Foundation for Jewish Broadcasting, FJBUnity.org, your donations in honor of the $6 million in memory of anybody, in fact, or in honor of somebody. I want to thank the Strassman family under the leadership of Barbara and Kenneth, who yesterday donated in honor of uh, Gavriel Siegel's bar mitzvah. And we greatly appreciate that. And it was wonderful speaking with Kenneth afterwards about his amazing parents who we remember so fondly. Um, so anybody out there who would like to utilize the fjbunity.org to recognize any occasion any memory, any simcha, whatever the case may be, we thank you. It'll be duly noted, and believe you me, much appreciated. It keeps us going here at JM and the AM. More coming up as we continue Yom HaShoah 5778.
I'm a very tired, old, and worn out man, and my eyes have long been blind. Most things that people say to me just seem to slip my mind. Oh, but the suffering and painful times that were in years long gone are still as clear upon my memory. As the numbers on my arm, what will become of all the memories? Are they to scatter with the dust in the breeze? Who will stand before the world, knowing what to say when the very last survivor? Forget. <laughs> 
what a line. The comfort I know that God in heaven won't forget. Unbelievable. JM and the AM Thursday. Ah, Yoma Shawan. I say ah the way I just said because I realize that Leon Goldenberg has arrived and I thank him. Don't mean to uh, jump him on the air like this, but uh, he's been gracious enough to come in and uh, spend a few minutes on this Yoma Shoah. Last year he was here and in an appearance that made quite an impact on this audience, and we were hoping that we'd get his feelings and thoughts as we now stand at Yom HaShoah 5778. Just bring that microphone to you, Leon, and Leon Goldenberg, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you for having me again. Um, one of the... So many different topics, so many different uh, aspects to Yom HaShoah and to... Uh, in your case, being the child of survivors. Yes. I posed this question the other day to one of our guests about growing up in the quote-unquote, this is not an evaluation, this is a reality because we're in America, growing up in comparatively the lap of luxury, right? No matter who you are in America, you are growing up in the lap of luxury compared to, compared what, to, what, compared to what your parents went through. Not what they went through, what they lived. In other words, we have this, this memory. Right, even what they lived, right, correct. Right. You know, everybody says, oh, it's so nice in the old country. Right. It was, it was not so nice. Some people had it better and some people had it tougher. More people had it tougher there than have it here. It's just that most people didn't realize how poverty-stricken they were. And you know, it, it's interesting. When I, would, yeah. when I would bring certain things to my father's attention and his background, you're familiar with, all the things he went through in his life. When I would bring difficult situations to his attention, not that he would make light of it, but in his mind he would compare it to what was really serious situations right. in his childhood. And that's what you're alluding right. to. Right. Uh, just to give you one story from yeah. my mother. She was born in 1916. When she was four years old, her grandfather passed away. And when her grandfather passed away... Her parents sent her to her grandmother so that the grandmother shouldn't be alone. And four of her uncles had come to America, aunts and uncles had come to America, and they were sending back a dollar a month to my uh, great-grandmother. And that made her into an usher, into a rich person. So she built this big house, and my mother came from a, a town, not a tiny town, but a small town, although the shul, when I went there, looks like it holds 500 people, called Kirahas. In, uh, when she was born, it was Hungary, then Czechoslovakia, Soviet Union, and today the Ukraine. So she was living with her grandmother. And her grandmother, because she became rich on this dollar a month that was coming, I'm not sure from all of the aunts and uncles, I'm not, decided she had to give back. So in our house, in our kitchen, she had a stew cooking all day for people that came from the little villages, the real little villages, the Derflach, where the unemployment was probably 80%. And the poverty was enormous. And these people used to come every single day to Kirahas and to the other larger towns, going door to door, asking people for a, uh, a turnip, a potato, not, God forbid, a piece of meat, right. 
although my grandfather was a butcher and he used to give them, he used to take the fat. I don't know how, you know, how we would look at it today, but then it was a big deal. He took all the fat and he cut it into pieces so that everybody can have a meat, a fleshiga, a cholent. Otherwise, they wouldn't even have, there was no such thing as putting meat and chicken in. And some of my mother's memories of helping her grandmother serve were that people who walked around all day, all day long, getting a potato here, a turnip there, something else there. You know, if they were lucky, they would get, you know, a pepper or something. Some of them came to town with rags tied around their feet because they didn't have shoes. And they walked sometimes two to three miles just to get to town. And then they walked around town all day going from person to person to collect what they could. Just to survive. Just to survive. And whatever they brought home, that one meal... Whatever they brought home, that was the only meal that the family ate every single day. And if they didn't succeed, there was no food. And so my great-grandmother had the stew cooking all day. And these uh, beggars, and that's what they were, but they were, you know, most of them were married with families. It's not, you know, uh, somebody that was drunk or something would come there. And my mother at four, five years old would serve them the stew and, you know, from this big pot. That's what poverty was like. How old was your mother when she arrived in this country? Um, she was. She arrived in 1949, so she was 43. She was with two children uh, that were born in the DP camps uh, where my mother met my father. And, uh, and then they arrived here in 19... They got married in 1947. And two years later, they came with two kids already. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um... Leon Goldenberg is here on this Yom HaShoah. Not to make too much light of it, but you know, in 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 the world of Pesach programs and massive kosher supermarkets with a lot of kosher meat, right? <laughs> That's for sure. Do you remember her ever talking about that? The differences, the the how on earth could people complain when they have all of this? Any of that ever she come up? She didn't talk about that. We were definitely. Uh, Growing up as a young child, we were definitely just uh, again my my we they arrived in 1949. Right. Uh, I'm a landlord, so it's a little difficult to talk <laughs> about. But rent control had just come in, and it was impossible to get an apartment, and you actually had to pay landlords money under the table to the get an apartment. This was in what neighborhood? We lived in the Bronx. We had an uncle uh, that arrived before the war, and he brought the entire family to the Bronx. And eventually, most of us scattered from there. But we arrived in the Bronx, and my parents got an apartment that was $40 rent, and you had to pay $2,000 under the table to the landlord to get the apartment. For the right to rent it. For the right to rent it, because it was rent controlled, and he said the rent should be higher. My father's first job, which he got from somebody that came from the old country and was in a grocery store, where she told her husband, even though the store was open on Shabbos, but because my father was the Rav's nephew, that he will not work on Shabbos, and he still has to hire him. And she had come from a very prominent uh, family, and eventually she became Shomer Shabbos again. So my father worked, went in Shabbos night, worked till an hour before Friday to make $15 a week and paid $40 rent. 
So he paid. So it was pretty poverty. But there was always, I guess we didn't realize what we were lacking. Right. Because it seemed normal. And, Some would say you were lacking nothing. But, right, right. Yeah. But she, she always had tremendous gratitude to America for giving them the opportunity to come to succeed in America, not, you know, uh, wildly succeed, but to bring up a family. And she would compare it to, you know, there were times when she would compare it to what went on and when she would talk about the poverty that existed. Although my mother's family, uh, I would say lower, lower middle income, or, you know, or just above poverty, but not, you know, they never lived in poverty because my grandfather's a butcher, so there was always, you know, right. food in, in the house. And they uh, had chickens in the back, and they uh, grew vegetables. So it was uh, in relatively a, a, a nice existence for what really went on in a lot of those areas. Leon Goldenberg is here. Now, uh, you said it earlier, so I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway for the purpose of the conversation. You have visited a lot of Eastern Europe, correct? I visited a lot of Eastern including Europe. the hometowns of your parents. Yes, and yes. including, I assume, the concentration camps. Yes, including going back with my mother. I took my mother back in 1995. So she would have been how old in 1995? Well, she, she was, was how old? In she was uh, 79. And she goes where with you? So if we go first. To, we land in Budapest, and then you have to take these. In those days, you had to take a car from Budapest. There was no way to cross the border. Uh, there was no flights into into those areas. It's still not. People still go through Budapest. And her town, her hometown, was very disturbing for her. Um, I had been there four years earlier, and the cemetery. And my my grandfather had this chus. I hate to use this word, of dying. When they told him that his uh, one of his sons had been beaten to death, actually by a capo, on the Russian front, and when they uh, gave him the news, he had a very bad heart, and he he just collapsed. He collapsed. He got very sick. In a few days, he was mm -hmm. gone. Why was he lucky? Because for the, they put up his matzeva to twenty-one days, the monument. And for the Shaloshim, for the 30th uh, day, which, you know, is a major uh, issue by us, uh, they were already in the ghetto. They were already taken to the ghetto. So he had this chus, he had the privilege of, of course, Yisrael, of being buried as a Jew. And her last memory was going to the Matseva Stelling, to when they put up the, the monument, and she had four grandfathers buried right next to my grandfather. And that was, you know, she always used to go to her grandfather's, you know, to 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 daven, to pray for mm -hmm. for them, for everything that was going on. And so now there were five grandfathers next to each other, and she was insisting that she would know where they were buried. And I was there, and there were houses and roads that didn't exist, mm. and stones from the cemetery had been taken out and used as uh, sidewalks and used as uh, in in as landscaping in people's front yards. I saw one actually in a foundation of a house. So I knew it wouldn't be there. And the people that came from there, the children, we built a gate all around the cemetery. But we could only build around what, uh, you know, where the road was. And we didn't know exactly where it began and end. There were only a half a dozen stones left. 
And when I brought her back, and she was sure she was going to be able to tell me, here's my father, here's Zayda Leib, here's Zayda Shmuel Yehuda, and and put them all there and line them up one after, and she couldn't recognize it because this road didn't exist, that house didn't exist. She was very, very upset. And then we went to her house. How far was it from the cemetery? Not far. And, of course, the people say, no, we're living here, generations, you know, which is bogus, and wouldn't let us in. And she couldn't be 100% sure it was the house because, it was, you know, a little paint, a little this, and she's insistent that, no, my father, my grandfather, we're living here, you know, forever. She was very upset, and she said, well, let's leave. And we ran. We, we literally left Kirahaz. But when we arrived in Auschwitz a couple of days later, where she had spent time in, uh, you know, as a, uh, as a prisoner, when we arrived there, she was, like, very calm. And I was there with my daughter, one of my daughters, my youngest daughter, and my niece. And she took us through the barracks where she was in to show us exactly where she was. She remembered the whole thing. Yes. Tselaga, which is how she called it. She told us stories that we didn't know at that point, that when it came Yom Kippur, my aunt who passed away uh, just over a year ago, uh, she was always the Fruma one, even, you know, back home. But when she, and she had uh, gotten married, so she was living in a different city, Chust, for those that know it. So she came to Auschwitz. Rob, right? Yeah, Chosterov. Yeah. She came there a few days early, a few weeks earlier, a few days earlier. And when the other sisters arrived, the other three sisters, she was, she was there waiting for them. And she was the oldest sister, and she was in charge. And when it came Yom Kippur, she said, we're not eating. And one of my aunts said, what do you mean we're not eating? We get this little soup one piece of bread that you get that you share with us. And he said, it's Yom Kippur, we're not eating. And they didn't eat. And they didn't eat. Um, there was another one that passed away very recently who uh, told me she came to she came to my mother's funeral, she came to um, my, uh, to the Shiva, and she said they were 35 to 40 young girls in the camp in the same bunk with my mother and her sisters. And when I say young, these are girls that were 14, 15 years old whose families had been wiped out. They're separated from their fathers if they were alive. They're separated from their brothers, but their mothers and any sisters were killed out and they were all alone. And you can imagine at that age being in, in a camp and my mother and her sisters became the then mothers to take care of these women. I remember you telling us right. this. How do you explain her calm at Auschwitz? I, I really can't. I really can't. I, I wish I could tell you that. You just observed it. I just observed it. She just talked about uh, never what she did for other people, about what people did for her how the, the, the night that they fasted, the block master put away soup for the women that fasted. Wow. How the block master, one, she, uh, she had warned him not to go to a certain place, and the four sisters were taken, 
and she comes into the other place where it happened to be her sister-in-law was the black master there. And she said, you stupid Hungarian girls, didn't I tell you not to come here? Do you know what this is? And, you know, they were innocent, and they said, no. He says, this is where they take you, and they're burning you tomorrow. They're gassing you tomorrow from this. And then she says to her sister-in-law, I cannot let these girls die. They're young, they're vibrant, they're strong. I cannot let them die. And she snuck them out. And she snuck them out and brought them back. These are some of the stories that she told us then, even though she spoke about the war, but, you know. Right. Uh, and you stood in the actual barracks that she yes. stayed in. Um, did she express how lucky she was to have survived? Did she understand, and I use that word in quotation marks, just how the odds, how high the odds were against someone in her situation actually she, surviving? She... Uh, there was when she was sitting shiva for one of her sisters, one of the four sisters. My nephew came over, and he says to her, "Bobby, Bobby, tell me what did you do that you survived?" Oh. And my mother looks at him and says, "What did I do?" He says, "But Bobby, there must have been something, something that you did." <laughs> I remember he was like, you know, he was so. Probing. <laughs> yeah, probing. And she says, and she was at that time well past 90, and he says, I? What did I do? And again, he asked her a third time, and I wanted to smack him, you know? <laughs> and she says, I? And then she looks up. He, he wanted me to survive. He wanted me to survive, and he made the decision that I would survive. And do you know why? Do you know why he wanted me to survive? He gave me one purpose in life, and that was to bring diaries, to bring generations on this world. And then she looked at me and said, did I do okay? I said, besides him, you did phenomenal. <laughs> Leon Goldenberg is here. Always an amazing presentation all the time, but especially on Yom HaShoah. Um, she passed away at the age of? 99 and a half. Wow. And her oldest sister? The one that led the family passed away at 102 and a half. Unbelievable. Who would have thought that with everything they were and going through? I have through one granddaughter named after both of them. Unbelievable. Um, and the last sister I'm going to visit Sunday, she's not doing well. But there's still a sister. Right? There's still one sister. She's 96, and uh, she lives in Boulder, Colorado. And Sunday I'm going to visit her. And uh, where were you in elementary school? In Tarasimus. The reason I ask, and I always make this point, and we made this point a little earlier with one of our guests, I, I assume the majority of kids your age did not have grandparents. It was so strange. We didn't realize that you could have that a grandparent. You're grand supposed to have right, grandparents. Right, that your parent could have a parent. Right. right. It was just there were only two people that I knew that had grandparents. That had a grandparent. And we thought that was strange. You actually have a grandmother. I had a cousin that had a grandmother. And when your mother was in her late 90s, she must have been at Simcha's with multiple generations. Multiple really multiple generation, right. I mean, five she or only, She only got the four. The four. Her, fourth, her first great-grandchild had gotten married before she passed away. Uh, he was actually married a year, but did not have at that point a great-grandchild. Well, my mother-in-law, who's only 90, 
last night we were at a vart uh, for her 15th great-grandchild to get that's going to be getting married her 15th great-grandchild she has I'm not even really sure but I, <laughs> I would say at least 15 to 20 great great-grandchildren so you are always at events with five generations. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we yes. painted the picture earlier how rare it is, not for you. <laughs> no, not not anymore, but for them, for us growing up, it was, uh, I'll tell you a cute story. I was in second grade and I got friendly with a kid. And in Tarasemis, the mothers used to come, my mother used to come also and, and serve lunch, prepare lunch, help set it up and serve lunch. And I got friendly with this boy, and his mother came to uh, uh, serve lunch. And after lunch, she says, this is my new friend. This is Leon. And she asked me this question, where do you live? Ba -ba 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 -ba. And she walks away, and I said, where did your mother learn to speak a fluent English? <laughs> he says, what do you mean? He says, your mother speaks a fluent English. Said, my mother, my mother was born here. I said, there's no such thing as a mommy born in America. <laughs> There's no such thing. There are no mommies born in America. I had never heard a grown-up speaking without an accent. So the idea of, of grandparents, non-existent. Non-existent. Unbelievable. I'm going to add that uh, that no, mo no mommy grew up in America to my repertoire as I right. try to remind people in the younger generation that they don't realize what they have. They don't realize. They're, that they're at these events, and it's a natural, not only one grandparent, that all their grandparents, grandparents are, are there. there right right nobody had we went to there was there was in our family there were friends that were of the previous generation that my mother would help take care of you know uh sometimes cook for them or whatever but they were you know who didn't have children who never had children or maybe their children died you know in the war they were just an anomaly anybody that was that was gray an anomaly. Have any of your uh, ha have any of your mother's great grandchildren been to Auschwitz to visit? Uh, I don't. A few of them probably. They yes. probably over yes. have already. Yes, I'm actually working on a trip for. I was going to do it this summer. Problems with camps. You got to plan in advance. Right. But next summer, I'm planning to take my children and the older grandchildren, which there are, you know, quite a few, uh, on a trip to the old city and to Auschwitz and everything else and uh, take the entire family, uh, at least the ones that are debating, but probably somewhere over 12, uh, you know, maybe if, if some of them are a little bit younger but are, are more mature, I would take them also and take them all, let them see where we come from, how they lived and how they suffered and how they came out and I think I had a normal upbringing. There was never a time that I felt that my mother, she would no, always- Nothing lacking, right? Nothing lacking. I had to eat. Do you know what I would have done for that, for a peel, and you're not eating your- uh, <laughs> Oh, so, boy. Oh, boy. But that was, that was about it. You, no, you better finish everything on right, your plate, right? And that was the only time right. that she, I mean, she spoke about the war. My father right, did. but that she referenced it directly to you. Right? To, to me. Right. Other than that, there was no <laughs> no such thing as, as, in other words, I didn't feel deprived. I didn't feel I was living in some sort of a horror, and that I had to be protected because- she definitely uh, didn't let us go to camps, and which, but we were poor. Right. We couldn't really afford it.
Leon Goldenberg, you're one of the community leaders that always reminds us how important it is to remember. And I really appreciate you coming by today. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for having me. Yomar Shoah 5778, Leon Goldenberg and all of our guests this morning reminding all of us that there are so many messages, so many important things to remember on this Yom HaShoah. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world on the web at NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Tomorrow, Malcolm Honeline, 7.40 Eastern Time. He'll be with us starting at 7.40 Eastern Time. By the way, I should mention... As a courtesy, certainly, Leon is on 570. For those of you in the New York, New Jersey area, Leon's on 570 on the AM dial, 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock? Oh, 620, I'm sorry. 620 on the AM dial at, what did you say, 10 o'clock? Eric Gonzalez on the Eric Gonzalez joins Leon at 10 o'clock this coming Saturday night, AM 620 on the air. Uh, You can enjoy his uh, Community Matters program each and every week. Tomorrow, Malcolm Honeline, 740 Eastern Time. Make sure to join us. Plenty coming up now as we continue our Yom HaShoah here on the Nahum Siegel Network, including Miriam Wallach at 1030 when she speaks with Sally Schatzkis, drama therapist and founder of Witness Theater. Speak to you next during our live lunch at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Till tomorrow, Nahum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future. <laughs>